On December 21, 1970, a man dressed in black and wearing sunglasses entered the Oval Office of the White House. He desperately wanted to bring a Colt 45 pistol with him, but even without it, his purpose was clear. In front of him stood a craggy, slightly crumpled figure. The man in black advanced, but his intent was not assassination. He had come seeking a badge, a badge that he thought would give him power. The man he met had worked all his life to gain power, and now that he had it, he would do everything he could to hold on to it. This was one of the most bizarre meetings ever to take place in the White House, for the man in black was the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley, and the craggy, crumpled man was President Richard M. Nixon. The photographs of that meeting are some of the most requested images from the US National Archives, but by the end of the 1970s, Elvis would be dead and Nixon would have resigned in disgrace. Yet the event has gained the status of a modern myth and helps to illustrate the interconnectedness of power, politics and popular culture. So today on American History 2, we explore the fascinating, bizarre and sometimes sad story of the meeting between the President and the King. Hello and welcome to American History 2. We are now at episode 19, although this is our 20th landmark recording. I am Dr. Mark McClay and I'm joined in Edinburgh um, with a slightly taller desk than usual, so setting up to say this, uh, by Dr. Malcolm Craig. Hello, Malcolm. Thank thank you, Mark, and thank you for those insights into our... uh podcast recording well, I'm, environment. I'm, yeah, I'm slowly trying to drip feed people information about the glamour um, the, the behind behind the, behind the podcasting. Um, and just to, I mean, obviously this is going to be the last podcast of the year. And I think just to take a quick, uh, quick moment to say thanks to, to all our listeners this year. The podcast has really grown a lot. Um, I mean, I actually forgot to mention the last podcast, but we recently passed 10,000 listens, which gave me and Malcolm a nice excuse to drink some fancy beer. Um, and we're now well over 12,000, so it's really been a great year, and we've been really humbled by how many people have, have listened to it. Um, we've already got, I think we've already got about four or five guests already lined up for 2016, um, and plenty of interesting topics to follow. And I should also say thanks a lot to the guests that we've had on this year who have been absolutely excellent um, and at times made us sound slightly more intelligent than we actually are. Um, and Malcolm, I also had a great experience at a conference talking about the podcast recently. Yes, the uh, British, British Association for American Studies uh, and Historians of the 20th Century United States uh, Symposium and Conference. It was a, a joint early career and PhD development day and a, a one-day symposium. And we got to talk about uh, about podcasting and the, the ups and downs, the things to do, the things we've learned. And I think that went down very well with lots of great chat and lots of great questions about that. So it was interesting to give the benefit of our sometimes hard-won experience yeah, uh, in such yeah. an environment. Yeah, no, it was excellent. Um, and also... Just to say, like recently, we've also revamped the website, and uh, my grand plan over Christmas is not to be opening presents and enjoying myself, but to be designing a Facebook page for us. Um, so that's uh, that's going to be the new frontier for us. Um, and also, just to mention, it would be great if uh, if you enjoy the podcast, if you could jump onto the iTunes store and give us a good rating, so it can spread the word about it. And final bit of admin uh, at this point, I just want to say the. There's a point we're going to be discussing Nixon in the context of his vice presidency um, during this podcast. And I want to say thanks to the good people at Yale University Press who sent us a copy um, of Erwin Gelman's recent book called The President and the Apprentice, Eisenhower and Nixon in 1952-1961. And that's going to be informing you know, what we chat about in that section. But today we are not discussing The President and the Apprentice. We are discussing The President and the King. Um, the picture which uh, Malcolm referred to in the opening comments uh, and which one person has described as the image looks like a computer-generated joke <laughs> um, and which now appears as merchandise in America on t-shirts, coffee mugs and even snow globes. Um, if we, I'm going to try and get the, the picture up so you guys can see it while you're listening to the podcast but if I'm not able to you know, complete that technological marvel then it will be on our Twitter and soon our Facebook page. 
So, Malcolm, um, I mean, you picked the topic for this podcast, a good choice, I would say, but I never really thought you were a big Elvis fan, and I'm, I'm almost certain you're not a huge Nixon fan, so why have you chosen this topic? Well, I'm not, you're right, I'm not a huge fan of either, but I think their lives tell us much about post-war America, and I think, as we'll see, their parallel biographies tell a fascinating story, and their final meeting in December 1970 is a perennially interesting tale of political power, delusion, drugs and popular culture, and hopefully we'll be able to tell this tale through the lives of both men, interweaving their stories as they enjoy success in the 1950s, decline in the 1960s, and a dual comeback at the end of the decade, and then the final hubristic decline after that famous handshake. Uh, so hopefully that's what we'll be able to do. So Mark, how's Nixon viewed? Now, you know, you've obviously kind of like found some choice quotes about him. How's yeah. Nixon seen? Well, that really depends who you're asking, Malcolm. Um, there are very varying uh, views of Richard Nixon. Um, I mean, one of the most off-quoted ones that you hear today is uh, from Noam Chomsky, who, who called famously called Nixon the last liberal president of the United States. Um, basically, I think, in a sort of dig at how conservative America is now, was Chomsky's point in saying that. I mean, Nixon was associated with issues such as the environment um, and women's rights. Not that he really had a great commitment to these things, he just sort of allowed them to happen. So it's a bit of a mischievous quote, that one. I mean, even Martin Luther King Jr., for example, called him one of the most magnetic personalities that he'd ever met when he met Nixon when he was vice president. Um, Although he did say that if he chooses to do you know, uses his magnetism for bad ends. He's the most dangerous man in America. Um, but probably the most funny quote, um, or very most striking quote that I found um, about Nixon was from Hunter S. Thompson, who, when Nick, this was Nixon had just died, and this was Thompson's way of offering uh, uh, an obituary, I suppose. Of Nixon, he said, he could shake your hand and stab you in the back at the same time. If the right people had been in charge of Nixon's funeral... His casket would have been launched into one of those open sewage canals that empty into the ocean just south of Los Angeles. He was a swine of a man and a jabbering dupe of a president. Nixon was so crooked that he needed servants to help him screw his pants on every morning. So Malcolm, I'm guessing that maybe there aren't quite quite so polarised views of Elvis or were there? Well, Elvis Aaron Presley, the king, so-called, of rock and roll, cultural colossus, and many people believe he's still alive. Uh, (laughs) His music continues to sell in huge quantities, his fans are legion, but so many people around the world remember him for his undignified death, ill and bloated, passing away on the toilet. Uh, And opinions of him during his heyday, particularly in the 1950s, were varied. Noted crooner Frank Sinatra said in 1957, His kind of music is deplorable, a rancid-smelling aphrodisiac. It fosters almost totally negative and destructive reactions in young people. I'm intrigued by what a rancid-smelling aphrodisiac yeah. actually is. But anyway, is that the same uh, Frank Sinatra that would appear live with Elvis Presley and do a joint same, show? The very would... same Frank Sinatra. Yeah. Uh, but also, I mean, Elvis was frequently accused of stealing African-American music, and I think the story of Elvis's music is a lot more complex than that, but the great B.B. King, Mm -hmm. one of the great rhythm and blues blues singers, he said, I remember Elvis as a young man hanging about the Sun Studios. Even then, I knew this kid had a tremendous talent. He was a dynamic young boy. His phraseology, his way of looking at a song, was as unique as Sinatra's. I was a tremendous fan, and had Elvis lived, there would have been no end to his inventiveness. So, so there are polarising views. Polarised polarized views. But he's not advocating that he gets uh, catapulted, his dead body get catapulted into sewage. No, so. nothing, nothing <laughs> quite as extreme as that. So, Mark, let's think about the early days of Nixon's life up to, say, his election to Congress. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, Richard Nixon's born in 1913 in a small town in California of Yorba Linda, which, uh, for our listeners who want a reference point, is close to modern-day Disneyland, which, when I was doing a research trip there, I was staying in a hotel where everybody else was going to Disneyland, and I was walking an hour and a half to the Nixon Library, um, which was quite an experience. Um, he has... Nixon very much is one of the last ones that sort of embodies the... The American dream life. He makes a big deal about this narrative because he doesn't come from money. His dad ends up being a grocer after he has a failure of a ranch. Like he has his ranch fails in Yorba Linda and he moves the family to Whittier. Um, 
Nixon also has a lot of tragedy in his young life. He loses two of his brothers to, to illness. Um, there's actually a Nixon brother that's still alive um, called Ed Nixon. Google him. He looks there's so yeah you can see Nixon in him and it's quite weird um, but I think the funniest thing about the trip to Yorba Linda and I talk about the American dream thing is there's a, there was a plaque there um, at the Nixon library that said Richard Nixon a shining example for American youth um, and as we go on I think we'll find out maybe that that's a debatable that's a debatable uh, thing to say he studied very hard at university though yeah, yeah, I mean, he was known for his work ethic. I mean, Nixon sort of always sort of defined himself as this. He had to be smarter than the people that were born into privilege. And when, when author Rick Perlstein makes a big deal about how he opposed the Franklins, Franklin being this exclusive club that Nixon could never get into. So yeah, then in the 1940s, uh, that small event, World War II, arrives and, and off goes Nixon. And the Nixon is not most remembered for his uh, his shooting skills, but he was actually more remembered for his poker skills. Um, I believe there was estimates that he'd won thousands of pounds off of his fellow his fellow. I think army that's buddies. tremendously unlikely. Probably really? thousands of dollars, I would imagine. Well, yeah, okay, that's a fair point. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, he reaches the end of lieutenant commander by the end of the war. He comes home, and a group of local Republicans basically persuades him to run against the Democrat, this big liberal Democrat, Jerry Voorhis. Um, and this was after they'd failed to persuade General George Patton to run for the office, so instead they turned to Richard Nixon. Um, quite ironic, since Nixon will spend much of his White House time watching the movie Patton, because he's so admired. And probably kind of handy, consider that George Patton dies in a jeep crash at the end of 1945. Yes, yes. Wouldn't have been able to stand anyway. Yeah, indeed. Um... And basically, he wins a congressional seat against the liberal Jerry Verhus, and he becomes that. This is where he uses the red baiting rhetoric that we'd sort of talked about on mm. a previous podcast with McCarthy. Um, but yeah, he gets elected to, to Congress then. Um, so, what's happening with Elvis at this time? Well, Elvis in 1946, when Nixon is first elected to uh, Congress, uh, it's his 11th birthday, uh, and he gets his first guitar. Although some accounts of Elvis's life say that he really wanted either a bicycle or a rifle rather than a guitar. I think Elvis's backstory is probably even better known than that of Nixon, born in a, to a very poor family in a, you know, a shotgun shack in Tupelo, Mississippi on January 8th, 1935. His identical twin brother was stillborn 35 minutes before him. Mm -hmm. So Elvis was actually it was a twin, but his his brother died before birth. Family extremely poor. Uh, in his first ever singing contest, uh, he was ten years old uh, and he came fifth. People kept telling him he would he couldn't say he wasn't very good at singing and playing the guitar and all <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, and then once he's sort of left school, he's been through high school and he goes into uh, Attempting to forge a musical career uh, in the early early nineteen fifties, uh, cutting these acetate demo discs uh, at Sun Studios, mm -hmm. a very famous uh, recording studio. And some would some would argue that they were much. If he just wanted to record simple acetate demo discs, there were much cheaper places around, easier places. If they were just recording for his mother, whom he had a very close relationship with, there was much easier ways to do it. However, many would argue this was Elvis. He wanted to go to the best place. He wanted to be seen by the major rhythm and blues, uh, you know, stars and the major stars of the day, the major producers and agents and everything. I mean, he really wanted to be a star at that point. Mm -hmm. It's always, always destined for greatness. So in 1953, way. he's cutting these acetate demo discs. Uh, what's Nixon up to in '53? He's not cutting any demos. Um, he is a uh, Nixon. After we've left him, is, has already quickly progressed to be a senator once again. Uh, using the sort of anti-communist red-baiting rhetoric to, to beat Helen Gahagan Douglas, the whole pink right down to our underwear comment um, that we discussed in that previous podcast. Um, and he becomes very prominent on the House Un-American Activities Committee. Um, uh, he's, he's key in the in the Alger Hiss case, um, finding, finding him guilty of... Was it Espinat? Perjury. Of perjury, yes. Perjury. He was never convicted uh, yeah, of espionage. espionage. Yes, which I'm sure we actually discussed on that last podcast. I think we did, yes. Um, and one of the things that he, and while he's in Congress, he actually becomes good pals with a with a little known congressman and then senator as well, one John F. Kennedy of Massachusetts. Um, and Kennedy and Nixon will have this very sort of dual rise as we're going to we're going to find out afterwards. Um, 
And he just basically builds this reputation as an intelligent, thoughtful member of Congress. He manages, while he does the whole sort of anti-communist, he's on the House on American activities, he manages not to alienate enough people. People see him as a smart up-and-comer. Um, and he has this sort of chameleon-like quality. He's not associated as a conservative Republican. He's not seen as a moderate Republican. There's a sort of split going on within the GOP between those two sides. Um, and so General you know, uh, Eisenhower picks him uh, as his running mate to be vice president in 1952. Um, and Nixon is almost booted off the ticket um, because he gets caught up in this, uh, accused of taking money from a, a donor or a supporter. Um, but Nixon, showing how savvy he was back then, when television ha- is probably is not your automatic go-to at this point, Nixon goes on television um, and gives this speech, or gives this talk where he basically says, look, all we actually got was this little dog, and we named it Checkers, and I'm sorry, but we're not giving it back. <laughs> I'm very much paraphrasing Nixon there, but that is the essential thing. And the, his appearance gets such rave reviews um, from from Republicans, they all write to Eisenhower and say, keep this guy on the ticket, he's brilliant. And Eisenhower, who had been debating whether to boot Nixon off, um, decided, so got all this correspondence, went, no, no, I'm keeping him on. Um, so by 1953, Richard Nixon is a firmly established near the White House as vice president um, to Eisenhower, who won in a landslide in 1952. And what is Elvis doing? Well, I mean, it's interesting that this is kind of like Nixon's greatest success yet, mm-hmm. his you know achievement of the vice presidency. And when, by the time we get to the mid-1950s, Elvis is achieving great success. 1956, his first single on RCA Records, Heartbreak Hotel, is released, and everything just snowballs from there. He's been quite successful in terms of small, you know, it's not small scale, actually, you know, reasonably large scale touring, particularly around the South, and the the southern Midwest and all that kind of thing. But it is these first singles on RCA records in 56 that really make him a national star, start to make him an international star. It's important to point out, I think, that Elvis did use many songs first recorded by African-American artists, including some very, very famous and influential ones like Chuck Berry and Little Richard. I mean, Elvis was not a great innovator, like Chuck Berry. In terms of guitar style, Chuck Berry was hugely influential and innovative. But Elvis and his management team, they, what they managed to do is successfully package certain African-American musical styles for a white audience, a predominantly white audience. But Elvis, despite accusations of racism, Elvis was always very respectful to the artists and the music that came mm. before him and were also his contemporaries, both in terms of rhythm and blues and gospel and blues and all that kind of thing. So perhaps accusations of racism against Elvis are somewhat unfounded in that regard. Yeah, and also is race not one of the... I mean, you're, you're going to go on, I think, probably to mention, you know, there's a bit of a moral panic, the sort of the, the famous way he moves his legs and his hips and everything like that in the video. But... Um, and that they're obviously, you know, the conservatives, moral conservatives talk about, you know, well... You know, that's inappropriate in terms of, in a, in a sexual context. But is it not also true that one of the main reasons that there was this sort of moral panic where radio stations stopped playing Elvis songs and things like that is, is actually to do with race. It was the fact that, you know, this was black music and, and a lot of white conservative Americans were did not want their white children, you know, looking up to an icon that was basically singing black music. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that's a huge issue. And, you know, radio stations do stop playing. There's accusations that Elvis is, and I'm making the air quotes sign here, jungle music. Mm-hmm. And that is fairly unambiguous code mm-hmm. uh, right there. Uh, but it didn't stop him becoming a huge success. I mean, you're right about the moral panic. I mean, Elvis dominates the charts from 56 into the late 50s. Elvis dominates the musical charts in a totally unprecedented manner. Mm-hmm. There's no one else can. Touch one one it. of these concerts is filmed by the police, though. Which is quite funny, you know, they were that worried about this panic that they had that the police filmed one of them and he was like, I had to not move my legs yeah. that time. <laughs> well, they, they want to get him on an obscenity yeah. charge. Yeah, uh, no, I think it was in Florida. I mean, it's about his overtly sexual stage presence and the reactions of millions of young American women yeah. Uh, yeah. to this. I mean, there's one story says that one of the reasons he starts doing his famous kind of pelvis and kind of leg mm-hmm. movements is he was so nervous the first time he was really going on stage. That his legs were shaking, and that he ended up making this part of his that could well be apocryphal. Yeah. Uh, but 
I mean, such is the, the nature of Elvis's fame and the, the stories about his sexual stage presence. It even makes it onto the Sergeant Bilko uh, comedy show where uh, a young mu- famous musician called Elvin Pelvin uh, <laughs> joins the army and uh, has to deal with being part of Sergeant Bilko's rather dysfunctional platoon. And that actually comes to 1958 and two transformative moments for Elvis. First, he's drafted into the army. And the interesting thing about Elvis at this point is he refuses special service. He could be part of a kind of you know, group that goes around singing for soldiers. And he refuses special service and says, no, I'm going to be an ordinary soldier. He ends up as a sergeant when he's discharged because mm-hmm. he felt it was something that was his duty to do. You know, say what you like about Elvis, he was genuinely patriotic. Mm-hmm. He genuinely, genuinely believed in you know the American dream and all all, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So he felt his duty was to be. He is an embodiment of it. Yeah. Well, he felt his duty was to be an American soldier. But however, not long after joining up, his mother, whom he has been close to throughout his entire life, uh, is taken seriously ill and dies. And this obviously has a, has a huge effect on him because of the closeness of their relationship. And it's also the case that during his time in the army, particularly when he's posted to Germany, this is the time he's introduced to drugs. He's mm-hmm. introduced to drugs by other soldiers and particularly amphetamines. Uh, so that's Elvis. Great success, but then joins the army. Many people say, this is going to be his downfall. No one's going to remember him. But actually, they've recorded loads of stuff already, and they're still bringing it out while he's in the army. Mm-hmm. So by the time he comes out, like, he's back. Yeah. So, I mean, during this time, uh, Elvis has gone round the world, basically, of every, you know, most countries hearing his songs at some point. And at the same time, Richard Nixon is travelling the world as vice president. Um, so you mentioned uh, Erwin Gelman, Gelman's new book from Yale University Press. Yeah. So, I mean, that is very specifically looking at Nixon as vice president. So... What What is Nixon's role as vice president? Where does he fit in the Eisenhower administration? Well, this is one of those lovely things that historians have a nice good ding-dong debate on. Um, and Erwin Gelwin's book, which uh, you know is, is very well researched and everything, and I enjoy re- enjoyed reading it, um, he argues against the traditional interpretation of the relationship between Eisenhower and Nixon is that Eisenhower didn't really care for Nixon, didn't really include him, and it's sort of summed up by the, the quote when uh, when Eisenhower was asked to name something good Nixon did or something significant Nixon did in the administration. And I, Eisenhower says to the press, if you give me a week to think about it, I'll, get, I'll come back with something. Um, and so that's been the traditional view of, uh, of Eisenhower not really being fond of Nixon. Um, whereas Erwin Gelman's book attempts to reinterpret this and he argues that, you know, Nixon was actually a trusted apprentice, hence the title, the president and the apprentice. Um, and he was he acted as Eisenhower's eyes and ears and everything when, when Eisenhower uh, like sent him out around the world, when Nixon, for example, took part in the famous kitchen debate with Khrushchev um, and in the Soviet Union, and also when he gets attacked in Caracas and is lucky to escape with his life. His motorcade is attacked with him yeah. and Pat in it. Yeah. And yeah, he's lucky to you know, get away with it. Yeah. So, and he also, he does also act as president, basically, because Eisenhower takes ill during his presidency. And, but also you mentioned this is when Elvis gets hooked on drugs. One of the really interesting things that Gelman discusses is Nixon's health during the 50s and that Nixon actually is using what we'd call a doctor feel-good um, during this time, which also Kennedy is as well, um, who prescri- he prescribed Nixon all these pills that it's not really known whether Nixon took them for the rest of his life, but Gelman puts this forward as an explanation for why people always thought Nixon was drunk when he called them late at night. It was actually the pills that he'd taken meant that he was slurring. Because there's this weird thing where people are like, Nixon always sounded drunk, but we never saw him drink that much. So where does it come? So this is one of the interesting things in the Gelman book, as he points out. You know, this is, it may well be the Doctor Feelgood stuff, and I think this is a it's a fascinating moment in the mid nineteen fifties. The influence of drugs and health on international mm-hmm. affairs, where you have Nixon, at least taking some drugs. Eisenhower, particularly I think in nineteen fifty six in the Suez crisis, yeah. Eisenhower is ill. Dulles has been diagnosed with cancer, and on the on the British side, Anthony Eden is in constant pain. And also having to take pills himself because of the stress of the situation. He keeps having blackouts. Yeah. And we don't have time to talk about this, but it's fascinating at the extent of the way that illness and drug use is yeah. such an important factor in kind of international politics at this point in time. Yeah, and I mean, as I also mentioned, Kennedy, who 
takes pills all through his life, a lot of them which actually do him more harm than good. Mm. Um, so yeah, no, it's, it's a very interesting uh, interesting side note. Um, but basically, as, as we come towards the 1960s and 1960 uh, especially, Richard Nixon's whole term as vice president, he's positioning himself to to be the next Republican candidate um, after Ike's had his two terms. Uh, and, he, and he does win the Republican nomination uh, in 1960, taking him to the high point of his career yet as Elvis was at the same time. Yeah, but I mean, for Elvis, I think, you know, like for Nixon, as we'll come on to, things start to change in the early to mid-60s because we're seeing changes in music and popular culture. You start to get things like the British Invasion where British bands led by the Beatles start to bring a new style of rock and roll, Elvis's style of the rhythm and blues, gospel influenced rockabilly kind of style that he's popularised, bringing in you know country and balladeering and all sorts of uh, parts of it, is starting to be overtaken, in a sense, by these new and different kinds of music uh, that are kind of appearing on the scene, especially you know, the, the British uh, side. And he actually gives up uh, doing live shows in 1961. He's been making a lot of films. Uh, he's had he makes this, a lot of he films. He makes a lot of films. He's had, a, he's had quite a success. His films aren't great. I say this as a film buff. Actually, they're pretty bad, most of them. Uh, well, have you watched all 27 of them to I've give seen, a critical I actually, appraisal? I've seen a lot of Elvis films. Uh, the, um, the one uh, where he uh, basically plays a Native American. He, there's a, he, he plays has, a Native American. A certain, well, he has a small amount of Native American ancestry, but where he is actually playing a Native American is an embarrassing case of racial impersonation. Uh, up alongside uh, my favourite case of embarrassing racial impersonation, Marlon Brando playing an Okinawan in the film Tea House of the August Moon. Watch that one over Christmas, which listeners. Which is a shockingly embarrassing <laughs> film. Uh, anyway, so he concentrates on his film career from 1961 onwards. And during the 1960s, he makes 27 films. That's a lot of films. That's a lot of films. They're mostly lightweight, fairly awful, sorry Elvis fans, Mm -hmm. uh, musical comedies or romances. Yet, his soundtrack albums continue to hit number one in the charts. But... By 1967, because things are dramatically changing in the musical landscape by 1967, we have the starting rise of the counterculture, psychedelia, all different new kinds of music are coming out. Yeah, but 1967, music festival in 1967, yep, yeah. Things are going wrong, and most of his singles are resolutely failing to break into the top 40, which for someone who dominated the charts for so long is unheard of. Is, is this to do with, do you think this is to do with the music, or is this Elvis himself not, not being cool anymore? I think it's a combination of a lot of things. He's been out of... He doesn't do live performances anymore. He concentrates on his filmmaking. Young people are turning increasingly away from his music, mm-hmm. which is seen as the music of their parents. Yeah. And towards, you know, new and different styles of music. We can think of bands like, you know, The Doors and Jefferson Airplane yeah. and all these kind of things. Jimi Hendrix, all that kind of stuff. The continuing popularity of the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, mm-hmm. who are, you know... It was thought that Elvis was shocking in the 1950s. The Stones, you know, are even more shocking Mm -hmm. uh, in the 1960s. So I think it's a whole complex of things that towards the end of the 60s, by 1967, he's not really the figure he once was. Mm -hmm. And the same could be said for for Nixon in the 1960s. Yes, well, the the 1960s up until uh, 67, 68 for Nixon are known in his library as the wilderness years. Um, I, I mean, basically to pick up where I left off, uh, when he just got the the Republican nomination, nineteen six the nineteen sixty election, um, which takes place between Nixon and uh, John F. Kennedy, um, uh, it's one of the closest elections in American history, um, and JFK edges it um, by debated reasons, um, certainly some Republicans uh, and Nixon will believe that it was stolen from him. And with some dodgy ballot counting in Illinois and in Lyndon Johnson's Texas, Johnson running as the, the vice presidential candidate for, for JFK. And obviously as well, one of the most famous things that happens then, you're, you're talking about uh, Elvis going to film, well, Nixon becomes one of the biggest television stars because he's part of the television, the first ever presidential television debate um, between him and JFK, 
which uh, Nixon was, you know, famously said to have won if you'd listened to it over the radio, but if you'd watched him in his five o'clock shadow. Um, and sweat. Yeah, the and sweat. crumpled suit. Because he, he yeah. refused makeup and everything, whereas Kennedy just, like, came, I think he'd been campaigning in California or something like that, and he just looked like, you know, like a tan colossus uh, next to the sort of shady Nixon figure. Um, you know, the imper- the personification of Tricky Dick-like idea. So people who watched the television show thought Kennedy had won. And Nixon chooses not to contest the election result because he's like, if I contest this and it doesn't get overturned, I'll look like a bad loser in my political career and we'll be over. So he turns around and he looks like, what can I do? What can I do? Nixon, as I said, is from California. So he goes, oh, there's a gubernatorial election happening in 1962. I think I'll throw my hat in for that one. And he bombs. Uh, from having almost won the presidency, he gets his butt whooped by the Democrat Pat Brown in 1962. And then he gives this bizarre concession press conference where he, he comes out and he, he basically starts haranguing the, the press corps um, for having been so unfair to him all these years and you know, famously says, you won't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Um, and basically declares that's his political career over, as if at the time anyone like, anyone listening to that would have gone, would have written your political career is over, but Nixon declared it anyway. And at that point, being quite lost, he uh, he decides to move to New York to become a high-flying lawyer, um, finds it incredibly boring. I think he even actually he argues a case successfully, I think, in the Supreme Court at one point. So back in the day, just think for a few, maybe $100,000 uh, you could have been represented by Richard Milhouse Nixon uh, in a court oh, I would case. Feel, I would feel supremely confident <laughs> yeah. in, uh, in getting off on whatever I was charged with yeah. if Nixon was involved. Yeah. And uh, then in 1964, the, Nixon makes a sort of desperate small play to try and get the nomination from the Republicans again and basically all the governors and senators that are at the meeting like somewhat embarrassingly go, is he actually asking us to nominate him again? Uh, despite the, that whole press conference. So Nixon, by, you know, the mid-60s, um, as far as most kind of politicals and commentators are concerned, is fatally damaged goods. His career is over. But in 1968, they both <laughs> make their big comeback. And this is one of the amazing things about the parallel lives of Nixon and Elvis. 68, they both make the big comeback. For Elvis, it's the uh, Elvis 68 TV special. I mean, it's just called Elvis yeah. when it's broadcast. Later known as the 68 Comeback Special. The programme gets an astounding, get this, 42% of the TV audience. It still proves there's people out there that are hungry for Elvis. And mm. he has some amazing outfits in that 68 Comeback Special, including the skin-tight, high-collared, black leather outfit. That is something or other. Which is, quite mm. frankly, amazing. Uh, but he comes back and suddenly Elvis is back. Everyone is like, oh, it's Elvis, he's back again. I mean, admittedly, his audience may be slightly older now. He's not really connecting with the youth of America very much. They've moved on slightly, but he is back, and he is hugely popular. He goes on to do a huge series of sellout shows in Las Vegas, something he was initially a bit sceptical about. He had a mm. terrible experience back in the 50s in Vegas. Uh, but and One of his inspirations we met while visiting Vegas to see what it was going to be like uh, was the Welsh singer Tom Jones, uh, who he became firm friends with. Like, I yeah. love the, the fact that, and he, you know, Elvis admired Tom Jones for his on-stage kind of like power and aggression and kind of confidence and all that kind of thing, and took inspiration from from Tom Jones. Yeah, and at the, you know, at the same time, you know, December nineteen sixty eight, Elvis is making his comeback on TV. Nixon's making his comeback as well. Yeah, Nixon's pretty much made his comeback by that point. He is the the president in waiting, uh, the president elect by then. Um, Nixon had basically built himself back up in 1966 midterms. He goes everywhere for Republicans. If a Republican, I don't know, like schoolmaster emailed him to say, or not emailed him, obviously, I'd sent him a letter to say, could you please come and help us out? Nixon would be there. He flew absolutely everywhere, gathering as many IOUs as possible. And the Republicans do quite well that year, particularly the districts, and I think this is generally a complete coincidence, the districts that Nixon visits have like a really high percentage of Republican wins. So he's like, look at the Nixon effect. And in 1968, he comes back as the new Nixon. Um, I think someone commented actually that there's, I think his opponent in 1968, Humphrey, points out that there's been about 12 new Nixons by then. You know, he, he gets to become seen this horrible person, then he somehow reinvents himself, and the, the press go, oh, it's a new Nixon. 
And Nixon once again uses, this time uses television to advantage in a book called The Selling of the President. Uh, I think it was Joe Guinness that writes it. And uh, he basically shows how the Nixon campaign from start to finish, television managed everything Nixon did. Everything was um, very, it was sort of bland in the way it was sold, but there was no controversy whatsoever. It was stage managed. And he squeaks home. I mean, I think we've discussed the 68 election before, so I'll not go into it. But he squeaks home against Hubert Humphrey. And in, it was in 1969, he makes his famous silent majority of speech, you know, the, the appeal to the great silent majority of Americans and the non-shouters, you know, the, the people that aren't protesting the Vietnam War, um, which is quite interesting because while we're obviously going to go on to talk about how Elvis and Nixon, how Elvis is an admirer of Nixon um, and generally sees himself as one of the, the great silent majority, the 68 comeback special, does he not finish with a, an appeal for peace? Like he's, he's The last song he has on it is called It's All I Can Dream or something like that, and that's a sort of peaceful anthem. So it's quite interesting that the, that. Well, yeah, I mean Elvis's position on stuff like Vietnam is interesting because he's he's frequently asked for his opinion on it and generally responds something along the lines of, "Look, I, politics isn't my thing. I'm just a singer." Yeah, is is his kind of general stance? So it's, it's an interesting and kind of like slightly nuanced view on it and his position on mm-hmm. on Vietnam and America's position in the world and all that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So. I mean, we've got them up now till they have their meeting in 1970, obviously. Nixon now president. Uh, Elvis re-establishing himself as the king. So why is it that these two men come to meet in America's most famous house? You know, was was Elvis a fan of Nixon's family assistance plan? Or was like was Nixon's favourite karaoke number at Lincoln Day Dinner's Heartbreak Hotel? Which, by the way, I would pay amazing money to see Nixon. I think it's more her. likely to be Hound Dog, <laughs> actually, I would suggest. Uh it comes about through a rather bizarre set of circumstances. Elvis has an argument with his wife Priscilla and his father Vernon. Because Elvis has just spent $100,000 on handguns and Mercedes. Uh, for people's Christmas for presents. For people's Christmas gifts. Because yeah. if you're Elvis, that's what you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he leaves. He just he starts flying about the United States, quite literally. Uh, and decides to go to Washington. Because he's got a collection of police badges. Little known fact about Elvis, mm-hmm. collection of police badges. What he really wants is a federal narcotics agent's badge. And he thinks, how am I, how am I going to get this? Well, if I speak to the president, he's an important man. I'm an important man. If we get together, have a bit of chat about this. Let's see what will happen. So he's on a flight to Washington and in this very hard to read, scrawled note on American Airlines notepaper, he writes a letter to Nixon. And I'd actually like to read a chunk of it verbatim, because it's very interesting. Okay, this go is for the, it. This is, the, this is the December 20-21 letter from uh, Elvis to Nixon. And I'll read it out as it's written. Dear Mr. President, first I would like to introduce myself. I am Elvis Presley, and I admire you and have great respect for your office. I talked to Vice President Agnew in Palm Springs three weeks ago and expressed my concern for our country. The drug culture, the hippie elements, the SDS, Black Panthers, etc. do not consider me as their enemy, or as they call it, the establishment. I call it American, and I love it. Sir, I can and will be of any service that I can to help the country out. I have no concerns or motives other than helping the country out, so I wish not to be given a title or an appointed position. I can and will do more good if I was made a federal agent at large, and I will help out by doing it my way through my communications with people of all ages. First and foremost, I am an entertainer, but all I need is the federal credentials. I am on this plane with Senator George Murphy, and we have been discussing the problems that our country is faced with. Sir, I am staying at the Washington Hotel, room 505, 506 and 507. I have two men who work with me by the name of Jerry Schilling and Sonny West. I am registered under the name of John Burroughs. I will be here for as long as it takes to get the credentials of a federal agent. I have done an in-depth study of drug abuse and communist brainwashing techniques, and I am right in the middle of the whole thing, where I can and will do the most good. Yeah, first of all, did you say in the letter he says he's staying at the Watergate Hotel? Washington Hotel. Oh, I thought you said Watergate. No, sadly. That that would have been too perfect. Sadly, sadly, Um, sadly. So so yeah, what to make of that? Isn't it? Right, so... 
obviously this is in the context of the the, the, the burgeoning war on drugs you know the the the, 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 the next mm-hmm. administration's creation of the war on drugs which you know only really begins in the next years and then is really ramped up in the 1980s is is the office a supporter of the right first of all elvis is taking drugs okay Quite a lot of drugs. A lot of yes. drugs, yeah, and lot of drugs. and he thinks that getting this badge will basically give him carte blanche to to go anywhere with his guns and probably with drugs. Well, his ex-wife Priscilla Presley in her autobiography mm. claims that that was one of the reasons for getting it. it. Would allow he thought it would allow him to carry drugs and guns anywhere he went. Yeah. He, ne- next point: Is a federal agent at large a thing? I know, I I don't think it is. Ambassador at large is a thing. Uh, But federal agent at large, I'm not entirely certain. Elvis doesn't just, this isn't just a letter, he turns up at the White House. (laughs) Just imagine the scene. In fact, there's a a great memo from uh, Nixon's appointment secretary, Dwight Chapin, to Nixon's uh, chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, both of whom we should say get heavily involved in the Watergate affair. Mm-hmm. And Chapin says, uh, memo, December 21st, 1970. Attached, you will find a letter to the president from Elvis Presley. As you are aware, Presley showed up here this morning and has requested an appointment with the president. He states that he knows the president is very busy, but he would just like to say hello and present the president with a gift. <laughs> Who doesn't do that? Well, I mean, the gift happened to be... A Colt forty five pistol in a presentation case. Yeah, I love, I love you read it. It's just like the gift was taken from Elvis, as were his entourage when he goes through to meet, yeah. you know, Nixon eventually. And I should just add, there's a brilliant bit on this document from the National Archives in the United States. At the bottom, Chapin says, "In addition, if the president wants to meet with some bright young people outside of government, Presley might be the perfect one to start with." Yeah. And in his handwritten marginalia, Hal- Haldeman goes, "You must be kidding." <laughs> yeah, it's 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 just it's fascinating how it comes about. I mean, you, I think it says something of how erratic Elvis's behaviour must have been about that point because he doesn't. Does he not when he has he has this argument with his parents and or with his dad and his and his wife? Does he not first fly east? Then decide he wants to fly to Los Angeles, and then when he gets to Los Angeles, he goes, "Oh no, 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 no! I'll go visit the president," yes. and then writes this pretty much. And I love it. I think in the like a longer version of the note or something, he mentions that I have attached, or sorry, I'm going to, I, I will include a short autobiography of myself, as if Nixon wouldn't know who he is. To be fair, Richard Nixon might be the one man in America who, who wouldn't have known who Elvis Presley yeah. was. Well, I mean, the fascinating... I 12.30 on Monday, December 21st, 1970, Elvis gets ushered into the Oval Office to meet Nixon. Okay? And according to the... To be a fly on that wall. Yeah, according to the... Well, the taping system isn't working at this point. I know. There's no actual tape record of this. According to the the official memorandum that records the meeting uh, from... uh, that was written by Eagle Bud Krogh, Mm -hmm. uh, one of Nixon's assistants the man who had gone to become the head of the plumber's unit involved. Everyone in this, apart from Elvis, is involved in Watergate. Are uh, we sure? There's a conspiracy yeah, theory know, for you. Eh? Uh, so, Krogh notes in his memorandum, Presley immediately began showing the president his law enforcement paraphernalia, including badges from police departments in California, Colorado and Tennessee. Presley indicated that he'd been playing Las Vegas, and the president indicated that he was aware of how difficult it is to perform in Las Vegas. I just love the fact that Elvis comes in. The first thing he does is, "Hey, Mr. President, do you want to see my cop badges?" <laughs> no. Yeah, I mean, it's you see, you see in the moment as well the fact that one of the things that I don't know if you've mentioned so far, but Elvis also says, uh, "Just so you know, this has to be a secret. Like, I will be your federal agent at large, but nobody will know I am a federal agent at large. I will. Like, it's almost like he's he thinks he will sort of surreptitiously." You know, somehow stop people who get taking drugs. Secret agent, man. yeah. But well, I mean, there's some. I mean, there's some great moments recorded in this in this memo, uh, and this goes back to the changes in music that were happening in the 1960s that had caused Elvis's you know decline to a certain extent. And Krogh uh, writes, Presley indicated that he thought the Beatles had been a real force for anti-American spirit. 
He said that the Beatles came to this country, made their money, and then returned to England where they promoted an anti-American theme. The President nodded in agreement and expressed some surprise. The President then indicated that those who use drugs are also those in the vanguard of anti-American protest. Violence, drug usage, dissent, protest, all seem to merge in generally the same group of young people. Yeah. I mean, it's... The, the other part about it, does, he, does Elvis not give Nixon a hug at one point as well? Like a sort of arm round the shoulder hug when he agrees to give him this badge. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't think we've emphasised enough. Nixon is one of the most uptight men ever to hold the presidency. Yeah. He's, I mean, and clumsy. Like, he's, yeah. he's a physically very clumsy but, sort of person. I mean, this, this is the man who, he's when relaxing at home, still wears a jacket and tie. Yeah. And yeah. a buttoned-up shirt and everything. He doesn't do in It's just good form to do that, Mark. He just does well. I know that's how you relax, Mark, <laughs> but I like a less formal kind of atmosphere. And there's, in this memorandum, there's this brilliantly understated paragraph. At the conclusion of the meeting, Presley again told the president how much he supported him, and then, in a surprising, spontaneous gesture, put his left arm around the president and hugged him. You could just imagine Nixon's response to that. You know, oh, oh, yeah, oh, sure, um... But yeah, no, it's, it's to be a fly on the wall of that meeting. But it is, something. I mean, all the, the accounts of it emphasise how much Presley was, he was emphasising his Americanism and his desire to kind of like restore respect. He talks about kind of like, you know, he was just a poor boy from Tennessee who'd gotten a lot from his country, which in some way he wanted to repay. And he said he could go right into a group of young people or hippies and be accepted, which he felt could be helpful to him in his drug drive. I'm not sure whether he means trying to stamp out drugs or going to buy drugs. <laughs> I, I think probably the former in that case. Yeah. No, I mean, and this, what's, what's interesting about the meeting was, obviously, it was stayed secret for about a year. And then there was a, a journalist got the scoop of it, reported it, but nobody really cared. Um, by that point when it was reported, it wasn't like it created some big buzz. Oh, look, Nixon, the, the, the Elvis visited Nixon and he's a drug agent and everything like that. Oh, that was the uh, Jack Anderson. Yeah. Uh, the great... But, syndicated investigative columnist yeah it must have been like I'm sitting on gold here and then it got published and then nobody seemed to care too much I mean obviously other things were going on by then um, but it's it's in 1988 isn't it when the when it's reported that the the National Archives are you know selling these things as the, the, this picture mm. that all of a sudden it becomes a sort of zeitgeisty yep. thing and it becomes the most requested picture it becomes, of the National becomes, Archives and just to emphasise, they do give him the badge. Yeah. Nixon says to Bud Krogh, who's there, says, can we can we get him a badge? And Bud Krogh's, oh yeah, yeah, no problem, we'll sort that out for him. And they give him an honorary narcotics agent's badge. So yeah. he actually, you know, Elvis gets what he, he came for. He gets his, his narcotics agent. Yeah. And this, this bizarre meeting between the most uptight, paranoid man and a sadly drug-addicted fading rock and roll star. Yeah. I mean if you yeah, I mean if you watch Elvis interviews late in his life, he still comes across as a child. Like he, do, he doesn't come across as a fully developed emotionally or like I think later later in his life and this is, you know, I think if we can go on to the kind of Elvis and Nixon's decline, he's becoming more and more addicted to a cocktail of of different drugs and He's becoming overweight. He eats huge amounts of incredibly unhealthy food. And there's all these stories of him going on stage, barely able to stand. He slurs the word. People can't even understand what he's singing, even in his most famous songs. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's, he's a, people are disappointed. There's huge amounts of complaints about him you know, you know, later in his life. He's just a wreck by this point. Uh, and... And it's because of the, the drugs and the overeating and all these kind of things that, that you know that come together. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, this is mirrored by Nixon's own downfall, uh, which you know, we'll probably one day do a podcast on, on Watergate and Nixon's downfall. But um, uh, I think most people probably know this the, the rough story of Watergate, um, which gave us the eternal suffix of gate, which uh, didn't exist before then. Now everything has to be something gate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so thank you very much, Richard Nixon. Um, and Nixon will be the first president ever to resign the presidency of the United States. Um, lucky to avoid jail time, thanks to Gerald Ford pardoning him. And by 1977, the same year when Elvis dies, Nixon does his famous, you know, Frost Nixon interviews where he tries to regain some sort of credibility. And uh, 
they're watched by about 50 million people, the one on Watergate, you know, similar to how many people were watching Elvis's comeback yep. special. Um, but Nixon never recovers real credibility in his, in his lifetime. I mean, Bill Clinton's speech at his funeral is all about trying to see trying to see past that part of yeah. Nixon. And as I read out from Hunter S. Thompson, that quote, not everyone was willing to move past what Nixon was said to have put the nation through a long nightmare um, through the Watergate proceedings. So, yeah, I mean, like, it's incredible highs and incredible lows. And Elvis, you know, August 16th, 1977, found on the floor of the bathroom. Still a young man. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he wasn't, he wasn't, an, you know, an old man at all and you know he just you know had his you know age 42 that's him yeah I mean, you see the fame pic- and the rock and roll you when know, you see the pictures of him he does not look 42 towards the end he no, looks no, like he an is, old man he, he yeah. looks he's very very ill towards the end of his life yeah. yeah well I think that's maybe the lovely Christmassy happy holiday uh, note that we shall end this podcast on um, once again thanks to everyone for listening we will be back in the new year um, where we'll be one of the very few I imagine of 2016 where it's just us again yep. um, and we'll be discussing the special relationship question mark um, between Britain and, and, and the air quotes and air quotes um, between Britain and the United States and perhaps Elvis and the Beatles might figure in that but probably I'm sure, not I'm sure, we'll, I'm sure we'll figure them in somewhere. Yeah. Uh, so thanks again Malcolm it's been an absolute pleasure doing oh, the podcast with you this thank year thank you very much Mark and we shall be back in the new year have a great time listeners goodbye for 2015 yes goodbye for 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.